There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, uh, before we even get to our guests, we, we need to do two show-and-tell pieces. Corinne, do you want to do show-and-tell first? Sure. Okay, explain what you made. Um, so from from a duck that was shot the other week, um, I just decided to make a pair of earrings. So I, it's very simple. Very simple. It's very simple. So just these uh, bright orange feet. Off the mallard and uh, Can you took put some. Put one on real quick. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bright orange mallard foot. It hasn't even dried out yet. <laughs> yeah. um, you could sew it back onto a duck and he'd walk yeah. away. And I just put some uh, stainless steel steel wire around it to like kind of hold the the ankle, and uh, made it like a little earring. Oh, dude, that makes a statement, man. <laughs> I don't know what statement it makes. <laughs> it's beautiful. Corinne was pointing out that people get upset. That they feel like it's better just to throw it in the garbage, apparently. Yeah, right. I mean... It's better to throw it in the trash than to put it as an earring. Right, like it feels disrespectful that you're, you know, it's a detached foot. They'd had an a, animal, whoever has that know? sentiment would have had a hell of a time with Plains Indians. <laughs> Being their whole get-up was made out of animals. Right. Been extremely upsetting to them. So it's like if you're going to save the feet for stock and boil them in a pot, you know, eat, you eat, still do eat that. the meat. Times got hard. Right. 
We, <laughs> like in a post-apocalyptic scenario, everybody's starving to death. Corinne's like, oh, that's right. I got earrings. That's right. She takes her earrings off, makes a little bit of stock, and everybody's fine. It's beautiful. So you, are you going to go into this, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I love I love making stuff. You know, I love using my hands, and uh, I paint a lot. I haven't done that in a while. I used to do a lot of ceramic, so um, yeah, um, I'll... Maybe we'll come up with a line of uh, earrings and rings. And you can get around, um, you know, like you can't barter and trade for wild game meat. Mm-hmm. But you could even probably go on Etsy and, and sell your wares. Sure. Or like, you know, for for uh, any future meat eater giveaways or yeah. fundraising, you know, there can be a, a pair of something, pair of earrings or something in that collection exactly. of uh, gift items me and seth are thinking about seth doesn't know about this but me and him are thinking about um raising a lot of money with beaver pelts mm-hmm. i got a path to raise a lot of money for our land access initiative through beaver pelts extremely high priced beaver pelts i was thinking about that too extremely high priced beaver pelts they yeah. come with a little certificate <laughs> signed and a pair of flip-flops. And a pair of flip-flops. Hell yeah. Comes with every beaver pelt. <laughs> uh, and then now, Seth, do your show and tell. Um, this past week, I was at deer camp in eastern Montana, and um, I stumbled upon a chunk of bone sticking out of a, a bank. It wasn't a cut bank. It was just like a little rolling shoulder that fell down into a little dried-up creek bottom. And... Um, I don't fully understand that when you say that. Well, you know, most people like, well, I shouldn't say most people. A lot of times people find bison skulls in cut banks, like sticking out of a cut bank. This was just like in the grass, you know, there, it was fully vegetated where I, where I found this. And, um, it was just, so no erosion, nothing had no, like fell away. No erosion at all. I just happened to see a chunk of bone sticking out of like the grass. And I just started started digging and uncovered. Yeah. It the was, first one I found was not in a cut bank. It wasn't in, in anything eroded. Yeah. Which I think, I don't know, I think it's cool. And you got two wasn't pieces. Obvious. It's yeah. a youngster. It's a it's youngster. A calf. Um, I was I was in a hurry when I was digging it out because my girlfriend Kelsey had just shot a mule deer. And I was, um, I, had to, I had to walk like two miles back to the vehicle to go get the vehicle to bring it. I, there was like a another road that w- ended up being way closer, so I went and got the vehicle and brought it around and made the pack out like instead of two miles, like five hundred yards. So I was going to do that, and w- in in the process of doing that is when I found this skull, and I was trying to be quick digging it out of the bank and ended up breaking some pieces off of it, but it was very fragile. Um, I don't know what's going on, but something with the cosmos where a lot of you know how right now in, in Siberia and in in Arctic Alaska, there's all this stuff coming out of the permafrost right now because the yep. exceedingly warm summers. Yep. Like mammoths and dogs and all manner of junk. I know. I want to go over there and poke around. Um, Field trip. There's a lot of – I feel like there's something in the cosmos that's not climate related, but there's just a lot of buffalo skulls right now because mm-hmm. I had found one in – I don't know, man, late 90s, and then didn't find one for forever. And last year, 
found two. One was full of crayfish, had been colonized by crayfish. Yeah. Um, then found a chunk like this chunk right here. And then my brother found a couple. Oh, yeah. So Cal found one. Everyone's finding them. Everybody's been finding them. I know them. multiple dudes that found them this year. I got There's so many coming out right now, if something is in the cosmos. I got a friend over in Missoula that found one and didn't even pick it up. He sent me a photo. It was level with, it was in a gravel bar. Le- it looked like it was on display in a gravel bar. Hmm. Like it was like level, like you could have walked across it in a gravel bar, but just like there in the gravel bar. Oh, we found another one earlier. Um, it was later in the summer that someone, we were floating a river and someone had picked it up and said it, like made a little Cairn. Oh, that's, right. that's what I'm thinking of. Made a little Cairn. And set it on top Not a of that. Karen. What it, whatever you mean, Karen. 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 It's hard to say that word. C A I R N. Made a Karen and set it on top. I don't know if they knew what it was or didn't know what it was. Well, if they, yeah, I mean, they did like a symbolic thing. I don't know. I just, I just pictured a bunch of kids playing down by the river, and they found this thing, and, and you didn't, you didn't. Uh, I remember you thought that. You felt that it had been corrupted and spoiled. Yes, by the touch of man. Yeah, it wasn't cool. It was cool, but it wasn't. It wasn't like this one where I found it, dug yeah. it out of the earth. That one had already been touched. Okay, now to our guests, Rick Matney, Matney, Matney. Yeah, spelled matinee. like Matney. No, not like Matney. Not like a movie. It, a lot of people call you Rick Matney. Matney. Yeah, Matney. E N E E. No. That's mat- no, I'm saying that's a. What's when you go to a movie? That's a matinee. That's a matinee. A matinee that's right. It's okay. a French word. It's a French. But word. that's e e. Probably with yeah. like a hat on it. Right. Just tell us how you spell your name. M a t n e y. M a t n e y. Yeah. And his father, Mike. Yes. Same last name. <laughs> yes. Um, Rick, you were asking about my special anchor you made me. Yeah. Yeah. Can you describe real quick how you make anchors? Well, I take a four-inch steel pipe and uh, fill it full of lead and weld bolts around the outside like a mauler anchor, except for the all-steel ones clank real loud. If you fill them with lead, they're a lot quieter. Oh, and so I built setup. you one. Yeah. And I asked you about it when we came in here. And, and you I said, was, there's I'm, a story about that. Okay. So here's what happened. One, I, I love that anchor. Uh, it, I had a compartment on one of my boats that it wouldn't fit into. So I took a I took a bandsaw and shortened the bolts so that it would fit in a compartment down to little nubbins. Oh well. <laughs> well, now I don't put it in that compartment anymore. I could have just left it as it was. So now you need another anchor. No, nah, it, it works <laughs> great, but like I just messed. It was just one of those stupid things that happens. Yeah, I feel terrible about it. It's okay. I got like eight more in the garage right now. Oh, you so, do? Yeah, we're good. When you're um when you're melting all that lead, do you take precautions? No, absolutely not. You just get a buzz and Yeah, I just get the torch, <laughs> grab a bush light and let it eat. <laughs> uh Rick, tell people about the 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 all the ways you kind of make ends meet. Um, well, I have an outfitting business here in the state of Montana. Um I run a steelhead lodge out of southeast Alaska. I guide for a private ranch down in Hawaii, as well as doing some bonefish guiding on Oahu and Hawaii. 
I uh, do a little bit of cooking for you guys here at Meat Eater. Um, I also do some in-home wild game cooking classes uh, as well on the side. Um, I have rental properties in town. My job list is extreme. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Very outdoor focused. Irrigation company that I was a, a part of, uh, partner in, and now I've actually got out of that finally, hopefully, so that uh, I can get a little bit more into the rest of the stuff. Can you, uh, so fish and bone fish in Hawaii, is it OEO? What's, what's the word? OEOs, yeah. O-I-O. Um, while in our neck of the woods, you know, they're not really regarded as, not when I say our neck of the woods, I mean like in our hemisphere or whatever. Yeah. Um, like when you go down to the Caribbean and stuff. Ascension Bay. Yeah, they're not really got regarded as, people eat them, but they're not by most people that fish from them, they're not like regarded as a food fish. No. But in Hawaii, it's like they have a completely oh, different perception it. of them, right? Yeah, there's, yeah, pounded fish cakes, uh, fish soup out of them. Yeah, that's, uh, the locals really like eating them. Um, you know, I think America, uh, United States, is the only place you can left, you can still kill a bonefish. They're protected everywhere else. But Florida, Hawaii, you can still kill them there. Um, I don't advocate for that, you know, yeah. obviously. But. My brother caught one in Hawaii one time. I think he said he was in 95 feet of water. Oh, yeah. And caught a far bigger bonefish than he'd ever caught fishing bonefish on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And it, they're weird. They're a deep water bonefish. They come up onto the flats to feed and there's so many pancake flats around um, the islands of Hawaii that there's very little flat habitat for them. So most of them are deep water fish. I mean, you'll see videos of them schooling, you know, in 60, 80 feet of water and there's just schools of hundreds of them. And, you know, you go up on the flat and there's four. But so. it's the same species. Um, I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's guys that argue that the Hawaiian bonefish are in the Pacific, uh, ocean bonefish are a little bit different than the Atlantic cousins. You know, they're kind of a deep water bonefish. There are, uh, what's called a sharp jawed bonefish, which I think they're going to classify that one as a different species. And Hawaii has both the uh, Pacific bonefish and the sharp, uh, sharp jawed fo- uh, bonefish. And so I think they do classify that one as a different one, but you know, you can noticeably tell the difference when you catch one of those versus the regular ones. Who, um... What kind of people, like, who are your clients? Not Hawaiians. No, no, for the most part, they aren't. There's a couple local guys that, that I go out with quite a bit, but a lot of them are my clients that I roll over from either my Alaska operation or my Montana operation. And they're like, hey, you know, what are you doing in January? And I was like, well, funny you ask. I'm down in Hawaii guiding bonefish. And it's like, oh man, I'd really like to do that. They're really big and they're hard to catch. And it's like, yeah, well, here you go. Come and you guys down. go out and sight fish for them. Yep. It's all sight fishing for them on the flats. Um, we do it out of the boat sometimes, depending on the tides. Um, when the tailing tides are right, we try to do it on foot as much as possible because that's the hunt. That's the fun one. That's yeah. more fun than doing it out of the boat. The problem with the boat is, is most clients and most guys can't spot them far enough out to make an effective cast before we spook them. So it's, it's a hard. So you're just stuck saying like 11 o'clock, 50 yeah, feet. Yeah, 11 o'clock, 50 feet. You know, and if your guy can do it perfectly, yeah, you'll catch a few of them doing it that way for sure. But we have a lot better luck doing it on foot, you know, low and slow. The slower you move. If you move your leg fast enough to where the water, uh, the water makes a tiny bit of a ripple noise, fish will spook from 100 feet away. Is that right, really? So you have to go so painfully Are they scared slow. of dudes or are they scared of sharks and stuff? They're scared of everything. Everything wants to kill them. I've seen 50-pound GTs turn sideways on the flats and chase 10-pound bonefish trying to eat them. 
you know, there's tiger sharks in the bay a hundred feet away. You know, it, it's, everything wants to eat them. You know, on top of that, they get fished to every single day. When I first started guiding down there a little over 12 years ago, you never saw anyone bone fishing. And now every single day, there's someone on every flat for the most part. So, so it the, took off. It took off. And the amount of pressure they see is, and they're old fish, you know, a big bone fish will be 20 years old. And so you're going to educate a fish like that that's been around the block. He's going to know the drill. So you need to be better than the next guy to get them. And they're extremely hard to catch. Um, they're, they're not that hard to get to eat as long as you can get to them without spooking. And they're neurotic. Sometimes they eat, you know, without knowing you're there. They don't even care. And other times you, you can't buy a bite no matter what you do. Um, have you ever hunted sandhill cranes? I have. Yeah. We were hunting sandhill cranes a couple of years ago in the Texas Panhandle. And they're like exceedingly decoy shy. Yeah. Down there. They just see spreads all day, every day. And this guy we're hunting with uh, skins all of his sandhills and makes these zombie decoys where he makes a frame and actually puts a actual sandhill sand hill on it. skin yeah. over it. And we were kind of like marveling at sort of like how wary they are. But then we had one that was uh, wearing a band. It had been banded as an adult 17 years earlier. You imagine the amount of spreads that things looked at? Yeah. Jeez. In oh, 17 yeah. years? What's the average lifespan of <laughs> Dude, a those things, those things get way Jesus. older than I thought. Yeah. Older than mallards. I mean, you know, a lot of birds can live a long time, but I think it's common to have sandhills, uh, you know, make it to be over a decade. 17? And you imagine, yeah. So you talk about like a 20 year old bonefish, just like he's Holy up on cow. those flats every day eating oh, yeah. after a while. He knows your name. You know his. He's like, never mind that guy. <laughs> yeah. Steer clear of that dude. There, there's one fish they call Bonezilla. Um, he's been caught three or four times now. Uh, she, I should say, is probably, last time, I think it was 13.7 pounds the last time I got caught. I think LG caught him last time. But uh, it's in the same spot. She lives in the same spot during the same tide. You can go there like clockwork and find that fish. And, really? Yeah. And it's it's unbelievable how how they pattern. I mean, they're, they might as well be a white-tailed deer. They do the same thing every day, you know, unless they you go off really think of, You don't often think of fish like that. Yeah, hunting a fish. Especially in an open, like in an open, in, like an ocean environment, you don't think of a fish as being like, here's what his deal is. Yeah, here's what he does. Or yeah. she, yeah. It's 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 funny. And, you know, you'll have new fish come onto the flats and do this and that. But, I mean, there's definitely a pattern. And the older fish typically do the same thing. I mean, they they have a thing they want to do. And during the right tide and, you know, the right conditions, they do that thing, you know, repeatedly. Yeah. You can see them do that month in, month out. Yeah. All right, Mike, tell us what you do. You guys have, you guys are like, uh, you guys have an interesting groove. Well, I've, I'm retired at this point, and I've uh, spent my entire life trapping in my off-season of working. And I had an excavation business for 25 years, and the freed up my winter time so my kids didn't see much of me during the summertime. You know, it was just our winter times were off, so our winter times was, was trapping. What age did you start trapping? I started about 12 years old, and I think Rick was younger than that. So, uh, Do the math for me real quick and explain what, uh, what year you would have started. I want to put it in relationship to, to the big fur boom. Like, okay, did you yeah, get started during the during six, the like 60, crazy fur boom? Yeah, uh, sixty eight before the right before. Uh, yeah, sixty eight's when I probably started trapping. Where were you living then? Northeastern Washington, north of Spokane, about eighty miles. And uh, what, like, what drew you into it being a fur trapper? 
Well, just the outdoor experience, I guess. I just love the outdoors. And so uh, my father had trapped a little bit, but very little. And he helped me get me around. I mean, my mother also drove me from place to place uh, for when I was trapping. I remember being, when I was a little kid, we used to make our mom drive around and like sit in the car while you run down into some cattail marsh and then drive to the next spot. Mm. You know, it's like uh, it's like being a soccer mom, but being a muskrat mom. <laughs> what <laughs> you were could you guys make that famous? What, what did you guys <laughs> Get a uh, sticker? Like, what did you start out for back then? Mainly beaver. At that time, beaver was probably the more valuable pelt. And were you? Um, Lay out the economics of it back then in the 60s. Like, was it good? It's a whole lot better than it is now. Uh, you know, actually, you could you could make a decent uh, living during the winter months trapping at that time. You know, an average uh, worker, just like the sawmill workers there, were making $30 a day. And so beaver was worth an average of $30. I remember oh, probably about, oh, probably 69, somewhere in there, uh, I remember I caught 19 beaver on opening day, which was basically a month's wages of a working man. And here I'm 12 years, 13 years old. So No kidding, man. So I, I, I actually, when I turned 16, I bought a brand new, I ordered a four-wheel drive pickup. Of course, I put, my father ordered it because I couldn't put it in my name at 16. But, uh, but I had the money that I made from trapping to buy a brand new uh, Ford four-wheel drive pickup. At so, that age, yeah, wow, so, <laughs> not like that, that anymore. Is insane, That's great. Man. That's great. So, in comparison to now, yeah, I mean, you couldn't trap enough beaver to buy a brand new Ford pickup. No, you can't trap enough to put gas in that Ford pickup. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Maybe you could buy a bicycle. Well, the plan me and Sather Hatch, and well, I've explained this before, but I was going to talk about the rule, the law I was going to make that. Only a law that says only me and Seth can trap beavers, but uh, they're worth a thousand dollars a piece. A federal law. <laughs> Don't know if you're going to get. It that might be the, might be the <laughs> first luck. of its kind. <laughs> um, you so, could probably do that with sea otter. Yeah, I think you probably could. There's a lim- yeah limited haul on those. So, oh yeah, that's, I want to talk about. Do you, I do you follow that the like the sea otter stuff a little bit. Quite a bit. Because I want to get to that later. Let me make a note of that. Um, that, so I know like native Alaskans can hunt sea otters. Correct. No one traps sea otters, do they? No. They hunt sea otters. They hunt. They can sell them only under the condition that they make it into a handicraft. Has to be substantially altered, altered is the word. But sea otters, as they come back so strong, some argue more than ever had ever been, are destroying the red urchin fishery. They're destroying everything (laughs) because it's all tied together. And so there's a push to make it, to incentivize people to go after sea otters. There's a push, correct, to to reduce the restrictions so that people could actually sell non-altered sea otters. Correct. That's what the Stedman is, uh, that's his last attempt that he actually failed at, but was to allow the natives to sell uh, just sea otter hides. I was attempting to try to buy them in the round so I could personally skin them in that too. 
But sea otters, their value is, you know, somewhere around $1,000 a piece for me to make product out of it. That's to make product. But but you're not allowed. I can't I can't physically touch it. So you uh, would I'm need, not if the rules changed. If the rules be... changed. And the natives, I think, would harvest a lot more, but I still don't think they would harvest enough to make a substantial difference. You, you got to remember the carrying capacity in southeast Alaska during the uh, – 73, when they did the Marine Mammal Act, determined that 20,000 was carrying capacity. We currently have over 50,000, so over two times the carrying capacity. So they've just, they're basically eating themselves out of house and home. The interesting thing is the people that are trying to protect the sea otters are actually the ones that are killing all of them, you know, as they start to basically destroy the habitat to where they'll completely die out. It's funny, every... This is such like a recurring theme, and I just saw it's such a recurring theme around. This is a real rabbit hole. I want to get back to the '60s in a minute here. <laughs> put all we're gonna put all this hole, but I want, I want to open up the rabbit hole real quick, or like peer into the rabbit hole. Whenever we're dealing with an imperiled species, it enters a mind space with Americans. Okay, like wolves in the '70s. It, it enters a mind space with Americans where you're like, this thing is imperiled. There aren't many left. And we get to a point where we're like, we will forever envision it that way. You know, it's like you get in your head the, the rarity of something and it doesn't, you know, we don't allow culturally, we don't have the elasticity in our brains to picture that someday we'll reverse the trend. It always feels scarce. So when we were low on sea otters, we put protections in place to recover sea otters. It's like sea otters entered like a permanent status in our brains as being imperiled without opening up the idea that we would someday hit recovery. That's why when they hit these recovery thresholds, it's like it never happened. With wolves too, we hit the recovery threshold. With grizzly bears in certain areas, we hit the recovery thresholds. And people are like, yeah, 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 we hit the recovery thresholds, but screw that. We don't want anyone to ever touch them ever again because there used to not be that many. Oddly, it didn't happen with elk or turkeys or deer. You know, we about ran out of elk. No one has a problem switching the mind frame. So I guess that's an exception to my own rule. But some things like sea otters, people are never going to get comfortable with the fact that there's a bunch of them. Well, the, the native tribes up in Alaska were not nomadic so much. So some of the mittens, the dump sites, they have hundreds and hundreds of years. And my understanding is that when they dig through these mittens, that there's 100 years where they have clamshells and 100 years where they do not have clamshells. Oh, is that right? So meaning the natural cycle of the sea otter. Fluctuating sea otter numbers. Sea otter, you know, like every other animal, goes in cycles. You know, if they're left alone, they will populate up and then just eat themselves out of house and home and then start all over again. And that's and, what we're seeing now. And what we're seeing now is we've exceeded the carrying capacity and they will die off and uh, then they will slowly go back the other direction. But it appears to be a hundred year cycles. From how, what, how big is one of those things? Two, three times the size of a river otter. Uh, 60, 60 70, pounds. Yeah. yeah, 60, 70 pounds of our big ones. And when the Russians used to, you know, like the Russians used to come into Alaskan waters like way back in the old days. They were after sea otters, buying sea otters. We knew that back then, like people didn't trap sea otters. They always just hunted them, correct? Well, you got to remember a sea otter is born in the water and he never leaves the water. 
And because of that, they're prime year-round because they're in— I didn't know that. Yeah. They're, they're like most fur bears you consider only harvest in the winter months. It doesn't make any difference to a uh, sea otter because they're in the same same environments. Very little difference between a summer sea otter and a winter uh, sea otter. Got you. And the quality of the fur. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll get back into all that stuff. I want to get back into the 60s. My understanding of like the fur boom, like I started trapping right when the fur boom ended. Okay. So we set our first muskrat traps in 1984. It was so good, but it wasn't as good. Can you explain what happened with fur prices? And, and maybe you, you probably have a more detailed uh, understanding of this. Can you explain what happened to wild fur prices? In this this sort of like magic block, and maybe my dates are wrong, but like from 1978 to 1982, people were quitting factory jobs in order to trap in the fall and winter. I know that uh, in the case of the coyotes, there were people that bought airplanes in the high line up here in Montana. And they made more money during the evenings killing coyotes than they did in their job. Well, like what was happening those years? Do you understand from a market perspective, like why did wild, why did like all wild fur all of a sudden get super valuable? I don't know that all wild fur did. I don't know if I'd agree with that. Oh. It's, it's long, long-haired fur became more popular and beaver didn't greatly increase. It was the long furs in 73, 4, 5 in that area there when the coyotes really took off. Gotcha. And that was just a fashion trend, I think, more than anything else. But for perspective, I remember like... Around the time when I became exposed to it, it was very common for Red Fox to sell, like in the late 70s, early 80s, it was very common for Red Fox where I grew up to be worth $75. Mm-hmm. It was common for mink to be worth 50 bucks. Beavers, you'd hear a beaver selling for in excess of $100. Muskrat selling for eight. Mm-hmm. Is that not, am I remembering this wrong? I don't ever remember beaver averaging 100. Is that right? No, no, not at all. Beavers never really changed a, a dramatic amount. It's a, a lot more difficult process to uh, tan and take care of beaver. And I think that's held the price down a lot on beaver when a lot of the other furs are a lot easier to process. And a lot of it's just fashion trends. As I said, when I first started, beaver were $30 and a coyote was $6. A bobcat was probably maybe 20, uh-huh. uh, but it uh, wasn't too much into the early 70s that we were looking at, you know, two and $300 bobcats and, you know, 40 or $50 coyotes at that time. And then it wasn't too much later than we saw $100 coyotes. You know, when you hear over the last, it's not so much right now, but like even within the last few years, you'd hear rumors of people saying that they were selling a bobcat fur you hear rumors that like $800, $1,000. That's still the case right now, but they're, they've got a lot more specific with what they're looking for. But those real wide black and white bellies, which they use for making vests and things like that, uh, is where those real wide black and white spots. And what they're after is the spots. It's basically the only spotted fur that's available now. It's surprising me that they don't just, um, that they care about, that it's that there's a concern about that it's actual because doesn't it seem like you could just like replicate it? You ever felt fake fur? Yeah, feels like fake fur. You can't <laughs> replicate that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, nature does it better. 
So on those, like, like who's buying, um, who's buying Bobcats right now? Like, what country do they go to? Italy, I think, is where a lot yeah. of them go. Uh, Italy, they, they're lining the pockets of jeans on their putting little top ends on girls' jeans and lining it with bobcat fur and inside the pockets too. So You're kidding me. Yeah, you'll see little white, you know, bobcat belly fur just on the top of like a set of Levi's on the top edge of the pocket leading into it. And I know that's pretty popular right now. And it, again, it's it's Europe. It's not much in the United States. Uh, France, uh, Italy, those are two of the bigger ones. I remember reading a, a thing one time. I was talking about the sort of the weirdness and unpredictability of fur prices. This analyst was talking about at times that northern raccoons, so in, like generally northern furs are heavier, like better furred, heavier leather. Correct? Is that a fair? Mm-hmm. Southern furs, a thinner, thinner lever, thinner leather, thinner, leather yep. thinner fur, just because of climate. One thing I'd like to bring up right now is the fact that you got to remember wild fur is just a reaction. It's basically the tail on the dog. Ranch fur makes up 95% of the the fur market. Oh, huh. Only 5% is actually wild fur. So the the fur price is, it only follows the ranch market. So, you know, oh, like, okay. like right now, they've got a huge surplus of ranch-raised mink, which in turn drives down the price of muskrat and, and wild mink. And it's just... Wild fur market just follows wherever the ranch market goes is where the wild fur market goes. Yeah, I read a piece recently that a big auction house that used to deal in wild fur had just stopped wild fur altogether and now only deals in ranch fur. Mm, I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, like some furrier. North American fur. No, not, now, no, no. It's like some furrier had abandoned its wild fur practice hmm, because, of the, because of the predictability of... Uh, the predictability and consistency of ranch fur. It's more consistent in the quality of the fur. You, you know, one fur is ex- nearly exactly the same as the other. So it's real a lot easier on a sewing aspect than okay. wild fur is because wild fur varies real widely uh, on the quality, texture, and color. And Gotcha. So this thing, uh, this thing I was reading about, just talking about the, the sort of idiosyncrasies of the fur market, was explaining that, I guess there's been times when southern raccoons have been more valuable than northern raccoons. And it was pointing to the weight of a finished product, meaning it's very hard. And it was saying outside of Italy, it's very hard to sell a fur coat that weighs more than nine pounds. Generally in Asia, if you have a fur coat that weighs more than seven pounds, people will think it's too heavy and won't want to buy it but an Italian will wear a heavier fur coat than anybody else. And it was talking about, so if you had a situation where um, Italy was buying a lot of furs, that could affect fur markets because they're more tolerant of heavier, longer coats. Whereas when furs are popular in some other country, like if China's buying a lot of fur, um, it could tend to be that that would be maybe driving up muskrat prices more because it's a lower bottom end price to buy the thing. And it was, I think that when you're looking at in the US and you're trying to understand like where fur goes and what drives fur prices, you tend to look around you and it doesn't really make sense because you just don't see the habits of what's going on in Italy, China, Russia, these other places when all this stuff gets exported. Yeah. What's, what are the impacts of COVID on fur? Pretty poor right now. 
you know, I've, what I've done is I've started my own little fur shop and cut out about three middlemen. And so I make all my own stuff and sell it in my, I live in Wrangell, Alaska, and we have a little fur store there. And so I, everything I catch, I cut out the auction yard houses. I cut out the, you know, shipping it more than one time. I basically ship my fur to the tannery and it ships back. It isn't shipping to the to the auction yard and then shipping from the auction yard to the tannery and then from the tannery to back to the furrier and you know, it just cuts out a whole bunch of middlemen and then I make fur products and sell them to the tourists there. What's your shop called? It's called the Trading Post in, in Wrangell. We have a website too now. It's uh, fursalaska.com. And so beans COVID come around, we finally decided we better start selling stuff online. And so when you if – you, if you've achieved a place – or like achieved a position where you're now able to be a fur trapper and fur hunter and make a market for and sell all your own stuff. Has all this chit chat about fur prices become irrelevant to you? Completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I, I view trapping as a, an excuse to run around in the woods and be in a place that I've, love to be. And so it really wouldn't make any difference if the prices were zero, I'd still be there. Uh, and I think I feel like I'm doing a steward of the land of maintaining the animals, you know, somewhere close to carrying capacity and a healthy population. So they don't get to that point where they become overpopulated and it stresses the animals and then the diseases come in. All animals have controlling diseases. So, you know, if they're completely left alone, they will reach that point. What all species do you go after now? I trap well, basically uh, in southeast Alaska, probably pine martin is uh, most desirable, but I trap pine martin and otter, wolves, and wolverine, um, beaver. beaver. Do you there's do any, any? Do you do muskrats anymore? Uh, there's no muskrats up there where I'm at. But you don't trap muskrats anywhere else? Uh, I have before. Come down to uh, the state of Washington and trap some areas that I used to trap when I was younger, but I haven't. Price right now is about $3 for muskrats. When they're 10, I can make pretty good money at it. Make $1,000 a day when they're $10, but making $300 a day doesn't excite me much. Yeah. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 
Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying? I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash eater. Make sure you use code MEATEATER. To choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Explain this contraption you made, though. This uh, is your invention? Yeah, I, I developed, well, you got to remember in the state of Washington in the year 2000, they banned trapping as we knew it. They uh, decided that it would be best if they didn't have any traps that were body gripping devices. So they, they banned all body gripping devices. They they banned the conibear trap, um, which undoubtedly is probably the most humane trap ever ever developed. But in the interest of humanity, they they decided to ban the most humane trap made, and so they said we could no longer use any body gripping devices. So that kind of forced me into a situation where I said, well, I still want to trap. So how can I trap muskrats without gripping them in any way? So. I developed a floating colony trap that the animal goes into and it never grips the animal. He drives down through two opposing fingers and drowns and then the trap resets itself when that muskrat goes in. And that was that was more palatable to the voters of Washington. Yeah, it it yeah. <laughs> you know, it was more palatable to do that. So so it forced me into a situation where instead of averaging 60 muskrats a day, I've now averaged 120 muskrats a day uh, in the same, same amount These of are time. These are that effective? Oh, yeah. What yeah. I'm looking at is a – it's kind of hard to explain, man. It's what, like 20 
was it 24 inches long? Yeah, they're 24 inches long and uh, they'd be 6, 12, 12 inches wide. It looks like a small cage, uh, a small cage with one inch or three quarter inch square wire, 24 inches long, uh, maybe 12 inches deep, six inches of brass, six inches across with floats up toward the top. So that cage sits underwater and and it floats. Then there's a little trap door, like kind of like a, a door reminiscent of a like a have a heart trap door that's just on a swing, so you can just push your way in there, mm-hmm. crawl your way in there. Right. And when they go in, what happens is is they bump this bump bar. The door lays down. These right here are adjustable, so you can get it to where it's almost balanced. But once the muskrat goes in, as you see, he can now can't get out. And this is the inver- inverted door model, which allows the smalls and the kits to escape which is something trappers have never had before. So if you can imagine now we leave all the smalls and kits, which are not very valuable in relation to the adults, this one only catches adult-sized muskrats. All the others escape unharmed. And by spring the next year, then they're mature rats. And then you can catch them when they're worth two or three times more than what that kit was. But that's not, that's for fur trappers. That's not like a guy that wants all the muskrats dead because they're destroying that's, his landscaping. Okay. That's this one down here. This is a different which mesh. Is, just, this has got, basically it's a treadle. It's a teeter-totter. Uh, as the muskrat goes in, the teeter-totter closes the door behind it. And once the muskrat's in there, he can't physically get out. It's uh, just one direction in, and eventually he decides he can't get out the way he came in, so then he dives down. The bottom compartment holds about eight muskrats, although I've had a lot of customers. I sell them all over the United States, mostly to the animal damage control people. What do you call this thing? It's a, a floating colony trap. Is what you, don't have a, you don't have a fancier name than that? The Lisa Watney 2000. <laughs> Lisa Watney, you got to explain that. Lisa Watney was the, the person that drove the uh, ban on trapping in the state of Washington. Oh, I got so, you. So I, I named uh, one time I called it the, the Lisa Watney 2000. Because so, <laughs> she she, in her attempts to make, make us not catch the animals, we doubled our production and trapping the animals. What so, do you sell one of those things for? Do you uh, still make that, them? Yeah, I still make them. Do you just I, hand make them all? Yeah, hand make them all. I come down about two weeks every year and make a couple hundred of them and then sell no them No shit, all really? Them. Yeah. So it takes me a couple weeks to make a couple hundred of them. And, and uh, then- huh, I, So in your year, when I was talking about you boys having an interesting uh, <laughs> lifestyle, within your year, you account for spending a couple of weeks making muskrat colony traps. Yeah. So, and you'll sell all those throughout the year. Yeah, pretty much. Can you tell us what you get for one? Yeah, one hundred eighty-five dollars plus shipping. Wow! But you know, how do you bait? How do you bait it? Okay, it's you bait the back part with carrots, and I usually put a couple appetizers up here in front. The muskrat will come by and grab the carrot, and he'll take it off, and he really likes carrots. It's like candy to a muskrat, and so he comes back and looks for more. But there seems to be some. I don't know whether they're bringing other muskrats back with them because once they start hitting it, they, it'll just fill it up you know, with what, muskrats. What's the most you've ever caught in one? I've only caught eight is the most I've caught eight. several we times, got- but I have a lot of customers that lay claim to 10. I had one guy that he uh, – it was kind of funny. He had a – he had ordered a couple traps from me. He's an animal damage control guy, and he had a golf course pond. He said – I he called up and he said, I'm not catching anything in my traps. And I, I said, okay, well, 
try uh, seeding the bank with, uh, you know, I had him describe it. To, to introduce them to carrot eating. It, yeah, yeah, to introduce them to seed the banks with carrots and see what happens. Well, he called me back about three days later and he said, yeah, he couldn't have got another one in it without Vaseline. <laughs> he had 10 of them in it. <laughs> he had to educate the muskrats on carrots. Yeah, yeah. they just didn't have, they were, he said that that particular pond was grass all the way down to it and the muskrats were just eating grass is all they were eating. And so they they had no idea what a carrot was, but once they figured it out, it was phenomenal for him. Do you use any commercial uh, lure? I yeah, I'd use uh, just a cherry oil and and uh, petroleum jelly is what I use in it. You can use fancy lures and that wouldn't make any difference. But... When I was a kid, we used to use mint toothpaste. Oh yeah. So helmet, what's your what's your mix? Just uh, petroleum jelly and uh, cherry oil, Vaseline I'd... and cherry oil, cherry oil. Like an extract. Yeah. Just mix it well, together. Mint, mint extract works when, too. When a person hmm. gets the trap, they get a DVD with it and a little bottle of cherry oil, which What's also What's the DVD just, called? It's just not a name to it. It's just a instructional video for it that that comes with it. So they can, because most, you know, this is entirely different than any trap that you ever see. But do you anchor it? You just tie it off to where it doesn't float away, you know. So can you I borrow it. that thing? I got yeah, six of them would, here, Yeah, Steve. we have lots of them, so. But, uh, See, I don't know, man, because it like takes all the romance out of muskrat trapping. Well, you know the neat thing about it, you, you, don't guys, need to, you don't know, you don't need to know how to read sign. No, correct. No, it's yeah, it's that's the best. what they. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> no, because yeah, I throw like, one in a pond and walk away. Yeah, but when I take my kids, we set muskrat traps last night because it was opening day yesterday. When I take my kids out, set muskrat traps. You're looking for the runs. Or We're looking like for learning P-Bez. all about this. Yep. And this is a push up, a lodge, bank den. Here's yep. where they've been doing this. This just go throw that son of a bitch in off the edge of the pond and start stacking them up. Like, yeah, but, but I bet the manager of that property <laughs> would be very happy if oh, we use that. No, thing. I don't want him to even know. I hope he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> I, uh... I don't know if he listens to this show or not, but it's going to change his whole life. He thinks I have some kind of magic. He thinks I got some kind of magic capabilities, maybe. I don't know. Gonna, if I set this, I am going to set it. I'm I would hide love to it. use that thing. I'm going to hide it. I, I went I'm going to tuck it into the cattail so he doesn't know about it. Yeah. I went into a pond here that a guy had had a trapper pay to come in and kill muskrats, and he killed seven muskrats. And the landowner was still seeing muskrats everywhere. And he, so he got a hold of me and said, well, the trapper before you got seven, do you think you can beat that? And I threw my six colony traps out and I had 53 muskrats the next, <laughs> the next day. Seriously? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So I came back, I set them that night. I came back the next day and I had between, or I, I said it was two checks that I had 53, but I ended up getting 53 and two checks um, with just six traps. And every one of them was just completely loaded. Jeez. And then I literally couldn't catch another muskrat out of that pond. It's just all of a sudden there was no muskrats in them. Let me tell you where this thing. There wasn't any left. Let me tell you this thing's vulnerability. And you probably already realize this. In Michigan, we I used you know I didn't trap a lot, but like I think like a good year when I was at, like probably the most I ever caught. I caught two hundred and fifty muskrats one year when I was not a kid, but like community college age. Um, and you could trap for weeks before freeze up. But hereabouts, like in the Northern Rockies, uh, at higher elevation, by the time the season opens, you're in freeze up. So have you made a have you made an under ice? Rig? No, no, this this is strictly for open water. It how, will why have you physic- not done any inventing for an under a thing that you chop a hole because send I'm, that son of a bitch down and they find it when they're cruising <laughs> around under the ice. 
Because it's Martin trapping season. Yeah. Now. Come on. <laughs> say, yeah, Come on. Not, you're on to the next thing. Yeah. This hasn't this, this is, hasn't bothered you? No, not as it hasn't an inventor. bothered me a bit. Uh, you know, I I'm at liking to do all kinds of things and muskrat season is muskrat season. Then yeah, but your clientele to... might appreciate an under ice solution. If I sent you out right now to trap a muskrat through the ice, what would be your um what's your go to set? You just look for the runs? One tank on a bear in a run. You just look for the runs, the bubbles. Yeah, probably. But his clientele mostly is nuisance trappers, yeah, right? They're trying to eradicate they can that. trap they're trapping your run. Whenever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. up and yeah, and they're not going to be trapping during the ice up. Yeah, I don't want to infringe on your business, but <laughs> here's the thing. Uh, me and Seth here, you might not have heard of us, but we're uh, <laughs> small scale free nuisance trappers, meaning volunteer. We're volunteer <laughs> nuisance trappers, <laughs> but we're volunteer nuisance trappers. But you gotta, you, our customers all work on our schedule. Like I'll have, I, you know, people who within a couple hours drive here, if they have beaver problems or muskrat problems, um, I'll be, you know, they'll say like, oh my God, we got a blank beaver problem, you know? And I'll say, well, we'll come out in the middle of the winter when it suits our likings. So not doing any kind of damage stuff, but it's a free service. But it's hard to really, um, in those, at that time of year, it's hard to give them what they're after which is the eradication, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I don't know, like, through the ice, I don't know that you can really totally clean them out. Probably not. Unless you just keep going and going and going and going and going. Yeah. You know, the people that are doing the animal damage control are charging 50 bucks a muskrat or, you know, $150 a beaver to remove it or, you know, whatever their prices might be. Are they really getting be. that amount of money? You know, it depends Seth, on where they're at. I know. I was just saying, well, man, we're, we're, we're doing it wrong. This volunteer <laughs> yeah. shit's not working. We need to make a website. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, these guys are making a living doing it. You're not going to make a living trapping beaver for their fur. What would a website be called? Free nuisance? Trapping? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Work on that. I feel like a lot of or a fair amount of our audience as hunters may also have qualms about mm. trapping. You find that to be oh, the case, they right? all do. Yeah, right? <laughs> they all so, do. So I'm just kind of curious to hear from everyone, not like it's necessary to make an indefensive, but to just kind of go into a little bit of your kind of thinking your thought process well, yeah, about I, it, you know, and, and why hunters would think that trapping is is different. Yeah. I'll go first. Yeah. Are you asking me? Yeah. I'm asking <laughs> all of you. I get asked this question a fair bit. And uh, I, I think that as a harvester of, of anything, um, like it doesn't matter if you fish or hunt or trap, you are beholden to a regulatory structure. Okay. There are rules that there are rules of engagement. Um, and the rules that you live by when you hunt and fish and trap are generally meant to ensure that they're generally meant to limit efficacy. Um, so that people don't have the tools at their disposal to like annihilate species. So they're meant to make it, um, that the means of harvest aren't so effective that everybody is putting themselves out of business. They also 
are very informed by historical use and common practice. Meaning, if we devise some new thing and we realize that all of our fishing harvest goals could be met with these very precise, specific poisons, say, regulators or people that set wildlife laws wouldn't necessarily just jump to that because that's not a historic use. It's not a common use pattern to use poisons. So we kind of prefer ways things have always been done in terms of like cultural longevity and how we go about our practices. Um, due to the regulatory thing, and because beavers have commercial value, say, or fur bears have commercial value, oftentimes fur bears are the only allowable harvest is by trapping. Mm-hmm. Take Michigan, for instance, where I grew up. You could not. The only legal method of take for muskrat, mink, beaver, otter, the only legal method of take was by licensed fur harvesters using trapping technology. At a time and it still will come back. It just ebbs and flows. Those things are of commercial value and support a commercial industry. And it was protecting those fur bears from wanton slaughter by people with firearms year round. So they said like, these things have value. We're going to protect the people that participate in this, protect the industry and make it that they are fur bears are meant for fur harvesters. Point being is you're operating usually within a pre-existing regulatory structure. So with beavers, for instance, here, um, you can't hunt them. Right. You trap them. If you think it's okay to use a renewable resource, beavers as a renewable resource, and you accept that people who are in agriculture, irrigation, um, people who are trying to protect timber, trying to check landscaping, fruit trees, streamside vegetation, aspen groves, what have you, that these people at times have a legitimate reason to want to get rid of some beavers. That's how it's done. So you're not making a decision like, do I want to hunt beavers or trap beavers? It's That's how beavers are caught, mm-hmm. is through trapping. So I don't view it as it would be, I, don't, I wouldn't get into a situation where I'm like, because I can't shoot it with my gun, Therefore, I think that they should not be harvested. Do you feel like that's the argument you get, or or there's a there's some kind of conceptual? Yeah, you traps know, are mean. Feels, yeah. Traps are mean, but mm-hmm. shooting stuff's okay. Running an arrow through it. Then you get into this weird, weird shit with people who think that like hunting with a bow is more ethical. Than hunting with a rifle. Even though lethality which is, like, is, like which is way less. Absurd. It might yeah. be like, it's harder. It's definitely harder. To be consistent with a bow takes a greater skill set. But for the animal, you, you think you're doing the animal a favor by killing it one way and not another? Like, or I don't agree. It. You either are you either are at a position where you think that that it's that we have that it's okay to harvest renewable resources. Or not. Right. That's probably the If question. you get to where it's not, okay, cool, it's yeah, not. Yeah. But if it is, 
then that's how we do it. Mm -hmm. It's the most effective, most humane way to get it done. And historically, that's how people have gone about it. So I just don't like, you know, every time I have a conversation, like I don't feel like I need to predicate every conversation about harvesting beavers or muskrats or whatever with a big thing explaining why I think it's okay. The same way every time you go through the drive-thru and order chicken nuggets, is there someone waiting there to like question your ethics? Why do trappers have to face it all the mm-hmm. time? You know? Why? Like, I'm not, I'm not, like, why? So Why does it, do you have to justify it every time you turn around, but people that eat chicken never have to? So for our listeners, I think we, uh, <laughs> we, we take out this bit of the podcast and play it on repeat. So Steve never has to repeat it again. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I want to make a sign at McDonald's and protest chicken nuggets. Yeah, it's like, well, how do you like? How do you feel about how they kill those chickens? You know what the answer you'd get? I have, dude, I have no idea how they kill those chickens. Yeah. Nor do they care. <laughs> I one time did they... some work at a place called. It was called. Um, it was like Bill Maher, but not like Bill Maher, but like right, Bill right. Maher, like a turkey processing okay. plant. Turkeys would show up. We were there working on some equipment. They'd bring in all these turkeys in trucks, okay? And the turkeys are all in these little boxes in a truck. So they were raised somewhere. I mean, if you've ever gone, I'm not even hacking on it. I'm just saying that's how it goes. Like, they're raised in these, like, warehouses. Thousands of turkeys packed into a warehouse. Then they pull up a truck. And you take all the turkeys and load them into a little box on the truck and drive that down the highway. Uh, I'm not a turkey, but being loaded on a after spending my life in a warehouse, never seeing the sun, to be loaded on a semi in a little box and hauled down an interstate system for X number of hours, I don't know what that experience is like. Yep. And then it gets to the parking lot. And it waits there in the parking lot. And eventually it's that truck's turn. And they go and pull it in. And a guy grabs the turkey out and hooks its feet into a little hook and suspends it upside down. And then it goes down the conveyor and its head gets dragged across an electrified plate, which gives it a good zap. And then it gets caught in this little V thing and it passes through that and a little spinning blade cuts his throat. But trapping, that's mean as shit. Savage. Savage. It's like I just, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Like, why is it mean? All those Thanksgiving turkeys, folks. But like um, you, you, you find a muskrat den instead of body grip and trap in there. The muskrat goes in the den, whap, body grip and trap, grips it around the back of the neck or over the lungs. He's underwater, can't move. He's dead in seconds. I, and, like, and that is so upsetting. I'd like to address that because I have my little no, first. No, take your turn. I'm first, done now. Yeah, okay. Well, I have this little <laughs> fur shop here and I get a lot of people coming into the shop, you know, and a lot of them are opposed to trapping and that, you know, and you ask, talk to them a little bit and, you know, you know and what do you dislike about trapping? And they, they can consider it inhumane. And I said, well, you know, we probably got some things we could agree on here. You know, we can probably all agree that all animals, wild animals die. And, you know, and you usually get an agreement out of that. And so, you know, next question is, well, do you agree that, you know, out of all wild animals, uh, almost none of them die of old age? And they sometimes you'll get some squawk of that. So you pull out your, your uh, smartphone, you Google what percentage of wild animals die of old age. And most all research is none or a non-negligible amount. 
Okay, so, you know, we're talking about the humane an treatment of an animal, and trapping is inhumane. Well, now we've decided that the animal basically has four ways that that animal can die. He can die from a conibear that relatively kills him instantly. He can die of starvation. He can die of a disease, or he can die from consumed by another predator. Out of those four deaths, which one do you consider the most humane? And when, in fact, trapping is the most humane death that that animal could possibly receive. You know, if you think of it in human terms, would you rather be hit by a train traveling 60 miles an hour or die of a disease over a three-week or a month period or die from being consumed by a bear or die from— um, Starving or, to death. Yeah, or starve to death. Over so, a long period of time. Or starving to death. So— uh, of the four possibilities that that animal is going to die, the actual most humane death is being trapped. We had a wolf researcher on one time. We asked her what kills wolves, and she said wolves. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. All the study subjects. Yeah. And the other thing is, is you know, most people, can they figure trappers are out there to catch everything they can. And when, in fact, that's the direct opposite. The trapper wants to be able to maintain a healthy population to be able to go out next year. What would be the benefit of, a, for example, a uh, cattle farmer that has a pasture that uh, supports 100 cattle? You know, he's going to want 100 cattle out there producing for him so he can harvest the surplus every year. So trappers are no different. We want to go out next year. We want to trap as many as we can. We want a healthy population. As stewards of the land, we want to maintain that healthy animal. So, you know, in the case where the people that don't want any animals killed, the animals make natural cycles where they'll populate up over years, disease out, and they just go from peak and crash, peak and crash. As stewards of the land as a trapper, I'm able to maintain healthy populations right straight through. Anytime you have, for example, coyotes getting overpopulated and getting mange or distemper, then you have the potential of that spreading into the, the dogs of the, the, the public. Domesticated canine po populations. Yeah, getting into the, the population of, of domestic animals, where if you maintain a healthy population of the coyotes, you don't have that problem. I've found that people are comfortable with the cycles um, it, it, like it doesn't upset them because people have this idea that like oh that's natural so like wolves getting killed by wolves they're like oh yeah that's fine because that, that's natural um, disease is fine because that's natural and I think a, a lot of the discord and um, acrimony that trapping brings about is because people this is a phenomenon I guess of the last 100, 200 years, people have gotten to the point where um, nothing we do, that they, they like us, they like our species to sit entirely outside of nature. Are you being a steward of the land by doing that? Well, no, but it's comfortable for people to imagine that we're, we're tainted. Um, we do all the things we do, but we're tainted and in like any role we play in nature is very upsetting to them. Like they want everyone to live divorced from nature so that all the ways a muskrat dies, all the uses that a muskrat goes toward to feed things, like the minute it enters into the human sphere, something's wrong. Something has, something has occurred that was bad. You know, 
that like of all the predation that drives things that a human predator would get it feels like naughty to them. Um, I think that's kind of a hang up that's hard to address. That's really interesting. It's like, I guess we're not animals. I guess we're not part of the uh, natural world. You know, we've brought technology to the place where it is so we can just be like robots that sit in the sidelines and like we live in apartment buildings we don't live in the woods i guess so we're yeah people a lot of people i think regard themselves as kind of icky they think they're like icky and evil in that context but i don't like i I don't feel that way like i don't like to be a agent out in nature um like a person who does things and consumes things and supports things and and you know uh, you know, a well-intentioned predator, like I, that doesn't make me feel nasty mm-hmm. and icky. It's interesting. Thank you. But, it, but it, it, it's a sentiment that people have. Yeah. My wife uh, ha- struggles with trapping. What's her? She struggles with electric reels. Mm. Because she, because you know what it is when I inquire about it? Because you're not there. Oh, I see. So you're not bearing witness to it. It's like a mechanical thing. She thinks it's cheating because you're not there. That you're not actually, it's not active. Yep. It's because you set it. Hmm. You set a trap. Yeah. And you don't need to be there. And electric reels, because your hand doesn't need to like go in circles. Yeah. So she feels like it's... (laughs) Well, I think cheap. most of the most of the time, the definition of trapping is hunting with mechanical devices. Most places, most states, I think that's how they define trapping. Is that right? Is hunting with mechanical devices? Maybe that's upsetting to people. But what's a firearm? Mechanical device. It's that, far more sophisticated. That's why hunting and trapping a lot of times follow the same uh, regulatory guidelines too, as well. You'll find a lot of hunting and trapping laws that coincide with each other. Yeah. But I can see that. It's like you're – I can see where she's coming from. I don't – I mean I don't know how I feel either way. But like you're in the moment confronting an animal and your action in that moment, that engagement with that creature in that moment is like an active choice that you're making. Yeah. Right? And if you're setting something out that's going to do its job – in your by absence. itself, in your absence, I can I can see where she is. Yeah, like sitting and waiting, sitting and waiting that. out a deer, waiting out a deer. To her, in her mind, is like that's great. Yeah, waiting it mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. But you go out in the warm part of the day and set a beaver trap. Then you go back to bed, and some point during the night, your ass isn't even sitting there right. freezing, and wow, <laughs> you got him. It just strikes her as mm-hmm. you're cheating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she might have an arguable point there. I can't say yeah. I completely disagree. Well, it's, I don't it's also to... just more variables that you have less control over, right? For sure. You know? Yeah. I think that's... In my defense, though, what I, what I always... T- when I'm having this argument with her, I, t- I tell her, like the electrical reel for... The electric reel, for instance, when she thinks is like... She was offended by electric reels. Deep dropping. Because mm-hmm. you don't see the fish and all this stuff. I said to her, and I said the same thing to her about beaver trapping. As I said, I could lay a gun out for someone and say, I want you to kill a deer. Okay, so let's say in one pile, I put a gun and I say, I want you to kill a deer. In one pile, I put all the shit that it requires a deep drop of black cod in the pile. Or I put all the shit that's required to trap a beaver in a pile. 
which pile are you going to grab? Figure it out. <laughs> yeah. And I said, okay, Corinne, here's the choice. You can take this and shoot it, catch a deer. You can take all this shit and catch a black cod, or you can take all this shit and catch a beaver. What are you going to go for? All right. Uh, What's going to strike you as the easiest thing? The old levered action 30-30. Dude, of course, because <laughs> yeah. it takes the skill set required. I'll probably trap the, myself in option yeah, two. Yeah, <laughs> the bits of information, the bits of information required to catch a beaver are greater than the bits of information required to shoot a deer. Okay. Yeah. They just are. Mm-hmm. It takes more know-how to cons- like. It just takes more know-how to get up and running. Yep. Got it. Like trying to set that thing up. One of my limbs might be in there. Well, to read. <laughs> no, morning. not just that, but to read the sign. To understand even where to begin. Right. Right. It's like not an easy thing. And so that whole like how that whole like challenge aspect, which is different than ethics, is still substantive. Right. There is a huge challenge aspect, but people don't see it because they don't experience and they don't go out and see what it requires. Right. They just, they have this idea of how easy it is, like how easy it is to criticize people that run mountain lions with dogs until you go and see what goes into it. How hard could it be shooting a lion out of a tree? <laughs> maybe the, maybe, well, I don't think, I don't know any houndsmen to think that's hard. Maybe the concept is like setting out traps is like setting out like a, a mouse trap. Well, it's like this muskrat thing we're looking at. <laughs> that, well, that, looks case, a, that looks a lot more uh, complicated than a mouse in trap. In the case of a coyote trap where you've got a two-inch circle that out of a square mile, you're trying to get a coyote to step on a two-inch circle. I don't know how many two-inch circles there are in a square mile, but, you know, that's kind of amazing in itself. That, yeah, that, that's something I've that I've heard that expressed, and it's a, it's a very valid point that you are not only that, you're trying to get them to step on a two-inch man-made circle. Yep. It smells bad. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. How effective people are at figuring that stuff out. What else you got, Corinne? No, that, that's it. I just wanted to, to touch on that because I think that comes up a lot oh, here. And I just, I mean, I don't know either way. You know, I... This is this is all new to me, so I kind of just appreciate the the information and the and the perspective. I think that, but in all fairness to the subject, I think that um, when trappers are defending trapping, they often want to go to they often jump to conibears, which are body gripping traps, mm-hmm. because it's sort of like a very it, they're like demonstrably effective, like okay. they, they kill things very quickly. Very few trappers go to defend trapping and jump to footholds that restrain an animal for a day or two alive. Oh, that. So now I now and then I have you a show question. up and then you show up and and dispatch the animal. Yeah, like okay. when we used to like trap and fox, red fox. You would dispatch like you'd catch the fox. You check every morning. It was it just made more sense to check in the morning, but you didn't have to. Um, some states have check laws, 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever you go, there it is. He's on, he's in the trap. He's been there all night and you'd go up and take a trowel and smack him across the bridge of the nose and stun him, and then take your heel and, and crush his rib cage with your heel is how trappers dispatch red foxes. That's upsetting to people, but trappers always want to talk about conibears. I do too. It's a bad habit of mine. Then um, it gets a little, then it gets like, then it's different. It's a different conversation. Maybe. Are there, if I was arguing with a trapper, that's what I would talk about. 
I'd be like, no, 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 I don't want to talk about condoms. Well, Rick and I used a lot of snares with the development of the Stenaker kill spring in that. Well, I don't know how many coyotes we have that the cables stretch out where you got a, a skiff of snow and you can see exactly what took place. You can see where the coyote goes into the snare. He takes a lunge and he's laying dead at the end of it and his foot has made him maybe a couple swipes of his, his foot where it's killed him extremely quickly. Just instant. gotcha. And Instantly. so I don't really use traps all that much anymore because of the efficiency of the the snares that are available to us now. It cuts off that carotid artery. And I mean, they're dead at the end of the cable. I've got a number of wolves that the cable is stretched out and the wolf is laying dead at the end of it. Yeah, so zero disruption to the to the, you can reset your set and you did, the grass didn't even get beat down or anything. Yeah. Like literally it goes to the end of the rope, they drop, that's it. You know, sometimes their leg doesn't even move. There's, I mean, it's, you couldn't stone an animal that, that yeah, you, quickly. You without, couldn't shoot an animal. You couldn't shoot one in the forehead and have, have it do have less Have it die as that. quickly as they do with the, when they cut off that blood to the brain, they basically just die instantly. So when you, do you not, like, do you know guys that don't use let me let me let me back up for a minute and just explain something to listeners. Uh, you'll often hear like dry dry land, dry ground sets being differentiated from water sets because water sets there's a hundred ways to, not a hundred ways there's a handful of ways with water sets to kill stuff real quick. Yeah, drowner wires and all kinds of things like mm-hmm. you get stuff underwater and and it's easy. drown it or it's just killed by the trap. So dry land sets, uh, dry land leg hold or foothold sets. Um oftentimes are just restraining the animal till you get there. I'll point out that wolf researchers often catch the wolves they're doing for collaring projects. They catch the wolves using the exact same technology that people are talking about being cruel and inhumane. Wolf researchers use, I know there's a lot of wolf researchers that use an MB750. Which is what? A, a foothold trap. So when they want to put a collar on a wolf or do damage work, they're using the thing that everyone agrees is so nasty. Oh, huh. So it's important to keep that in mind. Um, can we can we picture it as like, but, you oh. know, your foot, you know, is grabbed hold of by something. Yeah. And and you're just maybe you're, you know, trying to struggle and get away, but there it is. It's like It's a thing that pinches you, right. your foot. Okay. With so, predator mm-hmm. with canines, it usually gets them around the pad. Mm-hmm. It's okay. usually like held in uh, around the pad with a couple toes. Okay. Same you, stuff researchers use. You do not but, want a trap that breaks a bone on a. Right. Uh, you right. want yeah. a yeah. trap that is just restraining the right. animal. Okay. That's mm-hmm. the goal. Mm-hmm. Because anything more than that, you have more of a chance of losing that right. animal. Right. Sure. So the whole idea of a foothold trap is to just restrain the animal with doing as minimum amount of damage as you can. Okay. Okay. One of the points I was, when I wanted to set that up for people, one of the points I wanted to get at was um there are there there are perfect scenarios in setting traps and like best practices and humane practices, but things happen all the time that cause the systems to go awry. And I think the people that have a hard time with trapping are probably deeply informed by the situations where something goes awry. Yeah. The Meaning, extreme. Yeah. For whatever reason, a coyote pulls out, pulls a stake out, breaks a chain. I don't know. And then, then you have a trap on. Then it's run around a neighborhood with a trap oh, yeah. on its leg. Or I have, even in like beaver sets, where the drowner cable I use 
something gets kinked up. Some stuff drifts Doesn't down. Slide. It gets the, the cable gets a curlicue in it. A drift log comes down and messes it up. Something messes it up. And you do like, it's just like, I'll just admit it flat out. You'll come down and have a beaver's front foot in a trap. It can happen. Oh yeah. They twist out the, your equipment fails. And there you have, you've like tore a foot off a beaver. So somehow trappers like need to account for that more than other people who might have something go wrong now and then. Well, what about how many deer get killed by combines harvesting wheat? Sure. Or how many, how many deer and elk, um, are wounded and survive from bullet and arrow strikes. For sure. But I think that trappers are held more to the mistakes. Yeah. Than hunters and farmers and everyone else is held to. They're held more to the mistakes. I think it's a smaller community. It's easier to target them. I mean, you're not going to go fight all the farmers in the United States of America for killing rabbits. You know, the trappers, they're so small and rare now that it makes a very easy target to hone in on one group. You know, if you look at the total number of maimed animals by any user group out there, you're going to have a hard time convincing me anyways that trappers maim more animals than any other user group, you know, or injure them, you know, to the point where they aren't dispatched. So I think it's because of the population and the, I mean, how many trappers do you know? You know, ask that to someone on the street. Seth. Yeah. You're, it's not going to be a big number, you know. And I know, so Seth I, and Steve. <laughs> it's a guys. small number. And I, and I don't think it's, I, I think trappers get an unfair targeting because of that, because of their eliteness isn't the word, but because of their fraternity and how tight they are with each other and how small of a group it is. Um, they do get picked on more. It's a minority, you know, it's a minority. Yeah. In the, it's in the kind population. of in the playbook of, um, people who are opposed to animal harvest. It's in the playbook to go after in the death by thousand cuts routine. Mm-hmm. The smaller user groups are always who you're going to go after. Yeah. Early houndsmen, trappers, whatever. It's just like an easier victory. Yeah. It seems very other to people. Yeah, for sure. It's more acceptable to go after them because not a lot is known about them, you know. They're a group that most people don't have any firsthand contact with. You know, I'd say a lot of hunters probably have never talked to a trapper. Hmm. I used to point out that fishermen, fishermen fish and they might not do anything else. Correct. Hunters, most hunters fish. Mm -hmm. Trappers hunt and fish. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a hierarchy there. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos these things are super cool as a gift especially if you got mom aunt grandma whoever and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to okay it's easy to upload and share photos via the aura app and if you're giving an aura as a gift you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of oprah's favorite things aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages 
You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Just ask my buddy Chili, who's been slipping around in his Tacova boots, talking about how great he feels in them. He loves them. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable. They're very fashionable. And I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go around Bozeman. Stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. This show is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stressors big ones little ones when you keep these things bottled up it can start to affect you in a very negative way well therapy is a great space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down like figure it out that means figure it out with someone who's impartial who's able to sit down and hear what you have to say and think it through with you if you're thinking of starting therapy give better help a try it's entirely online Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, there's no there's no such thing. It's like, you're not so tough. You're not so tough that it doesn't do you some good to talk to somebody now and then about what's on your mind, okay? Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash eater today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash meat eater. Walk through how you even, like, let, let's say you're explaining to someone. Um, you run your trap line basically out of Wrangle? Yes. Wrangle, I've, I've got a, I have a cabin permit that's 42 miles from town. Uh, uh, same type of permit as, as uh, the interior of Alaska where you're allowed to build a cabin on state ground. Uh, permit cost a hundred dollars, and it uh, is a ten-year permit. And you can put yourself up a, a cabin, and then at the end of the ten years, it's either renewable or any time during that period you can tear it down. And it, but it does have to be removed. You have to put up a bond that for removal. Explain to someone how they would like. Let's say you were trying to explain to someone, uh, you got to go catch a wolverine. Here's what I would tell you if I had a couple seconds, to, a couple minutes to explain it to you that you need to go catch one. Like, how do you even begin to think about how would someone even begin to think about what would go into catching a wolverine? 
Okay. First of all, you're going to have to go to some place that wolverines live. Got <laughs> it. Know? So at that point, then, you know, try to find bottlenecks or funnels. Uh, for example, as I go up the rivers, uh, where a river comes in against a, a high steep embankment or something like that, uh -huh. that's going to crowd the crowd the wolverine into that spot. So you're trapping when the rivers are clean. Yeah, well, they're, they're still open most of the time when I'm going up the rivers. They're still staying open up there. I think you need to elaborate how you get up the river. Well, I, I have an airboat with a 0540 Lycoming on it that I get up the rivers with. That's what you trap out of? Yeah. What do you like to bait them with? Uh, beavers are go-to bait for almost everything. I've found that duck works really well for pine martin. and Duck? Yeah, duck works. And carcasses work really well for pine martin, better than beaver meat. You mean it's like the, when you clean a duck, like whatever's yeah. left over? Yeah, yeah. bone Correct. carcass. Yeah. yeah, so it's bones, basically, bones and feathers. Yeah, well, you know, after once the duck has been breasted, uh, you can use it for bait at that point. In the case of geese, you also have to take the legs, but then whatever's left over after you've breasted and taken the legs, then you can use that for bait. Yeah, it's like how you can bait a crab trap with a salmon head, but you can't exactly. bait a crab trap with, yeah. I mean, most sport-caught salmon, you can't yeah, stick the whole damn all thing. All the edible up. parts have been removed. <clears throat> yeah. What time of year do you like to start? The season starts December 1st and runs through February 15th. Well, it's short. Yeah. So you can still, in the middle of the winter in that country, have enough open water to run your whole, to run the season. Well, the thing about the airboat is because it's in that particular environment, it's not like the interior where everything's completely froze over. You can run snowmobiles up the river. I wouldn't think it would take very long and you'd break a snowmobile through someplace on these rivers because it's fluctuating between freezing and not freezing all the time. And so with the airboat, which it'll go on snow, ice, uh, water, it just basically almost goes over know. almost anything. Gravel bars. Gravel bars. Uh, does not like mud. Mud is basically airboat epoxy. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, you stick it in the mud and it's stuck. <laughs> I got you. Just too much oh. friction. Yeah. A, a pretty major travel barrier for a lot of the rivers in southeast is that the bays will ice up. There's enough fresh water in them that's not moving very much that you'll end up with these ice barriers. We used to trap out a little John boats and you could only go so far up into them before you'd basically, the rivers would ice up. And once you get above the ice dams in the bottom, then the river is moving enough to where it opens back up again. So the logistics of trying to figure out how to get up one of these rivers very far was, was one that was fairly challenging. So, I mean, my dad took it upon himself to figure out one way to get up above there. He knew the wolverines were further up the river. They weren't coming all the way down as far. There's a lot of the natural funnels where the points come out, where these, these wolverines would have to travel, were further up than we could get with a little aluminum boat. How so, many miles up river uh, are you trapping? About eight miles up each one. Up, So you go up multiple rivers. Yeah. All right. And wolverines roam all around. Mm -hmm. And you try to find some place where they'll their movements will be constricted, like down to a bottleneck of sorts. Correct. And that might be bank configurations, river bank uh, steepness of the you know up there saddles. Yeah, just any place that's a funnel. Same way as you tra trap anything, you go to where they're going to be traveling. How many, you know, just like a, just like a human being. I mean, how many times have you went to a hunting in a certain spot? You go back three years later, you find yourself walking in the exact same space, place that you walked three years earlier. Yeah. Yeah. How many do you take each year? 
I have I have caught not caught that many wolverine. I caught one here last year and and that. And so this is something new for me. I've oh, never, okay. It's new. I've never been able to trap wolverine before until, like Rick said, I spent about thirty thousand dollars to catch my first wolverine. So I could have. <laughs> I, I think that's an underestimation. I could have bought a lot of wolverine for thirty thousand. Built an air or built a cabin, got an airboat. But lots not, of years of trial and error. I mean, yeah. how, how much, how many trials and errors did we do no. before finally figuring out how so, to get up a boat? No, I, I'm not a big wolverine <laughs> trapper. However, I, it's like I said, it's an excuse to run around in the woods. So the great white buffalo. How do you catch pine marten? Well, pine marten is generally in a box as well, too. Although uh, one thing that I did take from my trapping experience in Washington, when they banned all body gripping de- devices, uh, we went to box trapping pine marten. And I found up in the- Like live trapping them. Yeah, live trapping them. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know- I mean, that type of trap. Yeah, that type of trap. Yeah. Just a cage trap. And so I started doing up that up there as well at, in the fact that I could turn loose the females and maintain a, a higher population uh, for the closer to the carrying capacity and have more producing females. Uh, well, it's no different than a, a cattle Aren't rancher or something. Are sometimes female pine martin worth more than male pine martin? No, male worth much, no, yeah, much more. Oh, so that's just that's always that way. Yeah, I got yeah, you. Males are much bigger, and they're they're much more desirable price wise gotcha. than the females. Females are just smaller. So much of fur is is based on square inches. Yeah, I got you. Like if it's twice as big, it's probably twice as twice much. Yeah, exactly. I'm with you. So, uh, how do you catch them? Well, with a, either one of two ways, either a conibear trap, which is far more humane than a cage trap, but the cage trap does allow you the ability to be able to be more selective in your harvest, where I'm just harvesting just males, return, re- letting the females go, and mm-hmm. uh, being able to maintain a higher number of uh, productivity out of the area. Yeah. Pine martin are extremely easy to over-trap. Yeah, uh, I hear that all the time. Why is that? Well, they're slow. They're delayed implantation, meaning that they're they're basically pregnant when you when you catch them. Okay. And so if, when I turn a female loose, I'm probably turning loose two or three Martin in reality because they normally all only have one or two kit or pups, whatever you want to call them. But uh, so they don't have you know like the mink have five or six in a litter, where pine martin only has one or two. Yeah, it's funny that mink like mink have a reputation as being hard to catch, but pine martens have a reputation as being easy Extremely to catch. Extremely easy to catch. Yeah. Like what makes it that way? Mink are afraid of their own shadow. I've done a lot of videotaping on my sets and stuff like that trying to find out, you know, some difference. A pine martin will just plow right into a trap. But a, a mink. But he's not is smelling, really... he's not worried about the smell of steel, no, the no, smell of nothing. grease, the smell That's, of humans. Well, yeah, they they just plow right into things. They they don't really care if it's food; they're after it. And the mink—they're—they're they're pretty skittish. I wonder if it's um, that the mink just lives in a—he lives in a more food-rich environment and can afford to be a little particular. But a pine martin in the winter has just got to be balls out all the time. Yeah, I think a, a martin most of his life is on the verge of starvation. Uh, I think they—they just—they work hard to make a living, where a mink has got a pretty easy life. And then you make a little box, like a cubby. Yeah. Put bait in the back, guard the front with a trap. Con bear. Yeah. What do you deal? How do you deal with all the snow? Like There's all a, the snow burying all your stuff all the time? Well, you can put it on the side of a tree. Just nail the box to the side of a tree. So. Will a wolverine run up a tree, though? Yeah. Okay. Wolverine, yeah. So you can get this, that up out of the snow. Yeah. 
Actually, I've got a, a set I'm working with this year that's uh, what I – I've actually got this from another individual up in uh, – I believe it's Northwest Territories where he's at, but he uses a tip-up, which is basically a long pole attached to your trap. So when the trap is sprung, it falls away and it, the tip-up brings the animal up in the air and suspends him. He's already caught and killed in the trap. But one real big advantage of that is in the case of uh, Pine Martin, he's suspended so the voles and shrews don't chew up the fur. Start but, eating them. Yeah, and so he's suspended up out of the way. And so I'm experimenting with that and making a, a set that's designed to catch lynx, wolverine, fisher, pine marten. We have very few of all of those items. There's a fair number of wolverine, but uh, mainly just pine marten is what I'm after. But it eliminates the problem. Last year, I had about six pine marten eaten by wolverine. And I had a wolf that I had caught that got eaten by a wolverine as well. So the wolverine ate the wolf. Yeah. So he found a wolf that I'd caught in a snare and he ate it. <laughs> so. Uh, wolverines used to have like a real bad rip, not used to in the North. Like I don't have any experience trapping like in the far North, you know, but wolverines, you know, they got the name, like whatever, like the devil and all this kind of stuff for how much trouble they gave the trappers. They just kind of get your number, huh? Yeah. Well, they basically figure out that wherever you're going, there's food. So, I mean, it's just like any other predator. They eat and they sleep and they don't sleep very damn much. So, I mean, they just go to what's available for them for food. And that's just a, turns out to be a food source for them. A friend of mine in Alaska who used to trap wolverines, I was asking him about how he found the wolverines and how he'd look for them. And he just said, they just found me. They just follow my snowshoe trail. Yeah. Yeah. He would make his sets in his snowshoe tracks. Mm-hmm. He's like, as soon as they hit my snowshoe tracks, they're going to follow. Well, it's an easy way to travel, too. Once they hit that, and they can run. You yeah, know, it's, it's like gravy it's, running. Oh, yeah. And somehow there's always food. Oh, yeah. It's like, I was follow the snowshoe trail around. Ooh, look, Pine Martin, delicious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ooh, a lynx. Love lynx. What time of year do you trap beavers? I try to trap beaver up there. I'll start off by trapping beaver in order to get some bait for my pine marten or wolverine and other sets. So I'll start with beaver right off the get-go. So I've got bait as much as anything. And then most of the beaver I'll catch for my store is going to be beaver in the springtime. The fur quality is a lot better in the spring. When does the fur get primed? Like, do they do, do the, do the regulators, you know, who set the seasons, do they good job of, do they do a good job of matching the opening and closing dates with fur quality? Yeah, I think most states do. Yeah, I think they do a real good job of that. But you like the beavers better in the spring? Yeah, better quality fur in the spring, particularly if you're plucking and shearing the beaver. Really? It's not good in the fall? Not as good. But, you know, they, what they call silkies are normally a, a, a fall beaver. They're a, lot, they're a little bit thinner furred, but they're a lot silkier, where if they've been all all through the winter and oh, they get coarse and that. Hell, they, yeah. yeah. They're thicker, you know, under fur is thicker than that, which makes better plucking and shearing. Gotcha. How do you catch those? The beaver, I use a lot of floats, uh, A-frame type floats. I don't follow. Um, I can show you pictures on my phone right you now. You might be new to this. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> so he might be new to this. <laughs> yeah. I never beaver caught a beaver in a float. Now, we, we, I can, we I used can, to take, like, when I was growing up, they never worked that well. We used to take two pieces of firewood and make a cross piece and nail two pieces of firewood together and then notch it out with a hatchet so you could set a couple 
footholds in it. Set a couple stop loss on it and staple the stop loss trap chain down to the bottom of the float mm-hmm. and then stick a couple dowels, drill some holes so you had a couple dowels and put apples on the top. Yeah, for muskrat. Never yeah. worked worth a shit. No. Yeah. Not as good as feed beds and bank dens. Yeah, correct. But in the springtime, though, that set will be a lot more effective than it will be in the fall. When they're hungry. Uh, not when they're hungry. They're actually breeding and they're just traveling a lot more. Okay. And then they're just running helter-skelter and running all over the place. They just travel a lot more and that makes them more, a lot easier to catch. And that's one of the things like the mink up there. You know, most mink trappers, you know, they consider a, a time frame for a mink to come by might be a week before they come back through in the lower 48. But up where I'm at in southeast Alaska, those mink only travel 100 yards from their den. I mean, the tide goes out and they're breakfast or the supper table's set and they go down in 15, 20 minutes or half an hour, they get a full belly and go back up and go back to sleep. So Yeah, I uh, it's funny you mention that because growing up catching mink, I was like very difficult to catch mink and you, people would always be surprised to hear that there's mink living around. At our shack in Southeast Alaska, we had a mink a few years ago, something got hold of it and tore its tail off, most of its tail off. And gave it a big wound right at the base of his tail. And this wound was about, you know, like the size of like two of your fingers put together, your middle finger and pointer finger. Um, like a wound like that up its back on the back of its tail, at the base of its tail. And this wound festered. And for a while, this mink got lost all fear of people. And it would run across your shoes and it just looked sickly. And a bunch of times I thought, man, I should shoot that poor mink. Um, just put it out of its misery. Or it was acting so weird I was worried about it biting my kids. That The next year, the mink is totally back to normal except it has a large scar in discoloration where it had healed up. And we have since, and that mink is now... Um, I now know, like, lives there. We know a hole it lives in, and we've seen that mink now for four years hanging out in one little spot, and you'll see it every day. And meanwhile, where I grew up and we caught mink, and people trap mink, and there's a lot of, we had mink longliners, you would go your, most people will go their entire lives and be unaware that they live there. But these, like, Southeast Alaska mink are like squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> Middle of the day, on the porch, in the house, just a way different mink. Yeah, way different mink. I've I've had a they got time to kill. Yeah, yeah, I've had difficult time catching them because of that. I think and just I I'm used to that mink that makes week long cycles and that, and it uh, it's been a learning learning curve for me. They say that if you move a hundred miles, you got to learn how to trap all over again and. That's, oh, that's I'm with you. Truly, the case. <laughs> what do you um? What's the main thing? Like, like you, you were saying, you catch a lot of pine martens. Mm-hmm. What's the main thing you use pine martens for? Oh, I'm making uh, hats out of them. I make uh, different things. Uh, I don't think I've made any koozies with them. One of one of my big sellers is is uh, beer koozies, and I really enjoy making those. And I enjoy the Californians that come up to Alaska, and I explain to them that you know these are the the perfect beer koozie for a a Californian for, you know, a, an environmentalist, if you want to call them an environmentalist. Because they're not made out of foam. Yeah, it's biodegradable. It's organic. It's a renewable resource. It's everything a Californian should like. What do you get for a beer koozie? 25 bucks. 
20, 20 bucks, 25 for a bottle, 20 for a beer cam. So Pine Martin beer koozies yeah. are a good seller. Well, actually, I make most of them out of beaver and otter. Pine Martin headbands and hats probably yeah. are mostly the Pine Martin get made into earwarmers, headbands, hats. Yeah. It's a, the thing about, well, basically a Pine Martin is the same thing as a sable. It's a type of sable. Yeah. And when you think of Pine Martin, once it becomes in, into a fur product, it's a sable. And oh, so, is that how they, I just thought they called them sable in Eurasia. That's where, you know, the Russian sable is where that. But it's the same comes, animal, right? It's the same animal. Oh. Yeah. We just call it a pine martin. We call it yeah. a pine martin. When it's made North into American a coat, sable. it's a sable coat. So if you caught a bunch mm. of pine martins in America and made a coat, it's still a sable coat. It's a sable yep. coat. No shit. Mm. Yeah, Did you I know t- that, Seth? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's oh, did you know Seth one time had a top lot mink? He used to put up fur for a living. Oh. Yeah, the top lot make it went for eighteen dollars. <laughs> That's not bad. Yep. I've had lots of top We call him lots. Seth Top Lot Morris. <laughs> uh Mike, you've brought up uh, I noticed you brought up like the idea of plastics and things. Um that furs biodegradable, organic, renewable. Are you just being cynical? Like are you anti plastic? Not particularly. You're just rubbing it in their nose? Yeah. Well, it's just that they, they <laughs> may, they're trying to make a point that, you know, that fur is a bad thing. And when in reality, it's exactly what those people desire. You renewable, know, want, re- organic renewable resources. Yeah, yeah. That's what they I want. I mean, why would they not want that? But yet they're completely opposed to fur, you know. So I'm thinking, you know, this doesn't make sense. Do you understand why people aren't offended by leather? Like why once you peel you know, the fur no away idea. from something is it so easy? Why is it not offensive? That's acceptable, yeah. yeah. But you leave the fur on, it pisses people off. <laughs> it's all it, leather had hair on it. All leather had fur on it. It should come with a reminder. It should. This used to be haired. <laughs> I think we it, scraped it away. <laughs> it, it speaks to the detachment that we as a society have from nature. And I think that's the biggest problem. It's why people have problems and want to put humans in a separate category from animals. I think and, it also comes back to what you were talking about with Corinne's earrings, how you said no one would have an issue if it were a feather, but something about that foot, it's its a more tangible reminder of this living, this thing that once was living, like fur is to leather. Like leather doesn't really remind you just looking at it on a coat or whatever, but if you see something covered in fur, I, I don't know, it kind of just triggers that. Yeah, like oh, that was that, that, that was an animal. Like, I mean, you, yeah. you know that law I wanted to make that only me and Seth could catch beavers, <laughs> but they had to be worth a thousand dollars a piece. Yep, I think this should be another law <laughs> that one day out of the year, everything that's leather has to still have its fur on. It. Yeah, <laughs> that'd well, be a hell of a day. I mean, if you, people would be people like, would "My freak out. God, my God, the amount of fur running around." <laughs> Is out of control. Those ostrich boots would look real weird for a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, feathered boots. Be like Liberace's boots. That's the second time I mentioned Liberace. You know who you know who that is? I've heard it. You don't know who Le- I've Phil? heard you mention it. I, I should probably get rid of that reference because I Vegas think it might showman, be showman, right? Piano player. Type in Liberace. He is a musician. American pianist. Type yeah. pianist. Get it, go to yep. images. Oh, flashy. Very, very flamboyant. Mm. Very flashy. I'm going to stop flashy. using that reference, though, except he's got to be dead or dead. Uh, so have you quit using footholds because of the humane 
Do you, like pretty, pretty much. I, really? Like because yeah. of personal feeling about yeah. humane use? Yeah, I think uh, I'm being a better steward of, and better respect to the animal by killing them instantly. I don't hardly use footholds at all. I hmm. can't think of any place I actually use footholds. Occasionally on a mink set, but predominantly all conibers. Do you look down on people who use footholds? No, not at all. Just per, you personally? No, me personally. I just – I prefer to use conibers myself. I feel I'm being a better – Better steward to the, you know, and you look at the Canadians where they have the best management practices. You know, they require their economists to kill an animal in a certain time frame, and if it doesn't meet that requirement, it's not a legal trap. Is that right? Yeah. Hmm. Speaking of the word Canada, uh, what's the Parker Company? Canada Goose. Can- yeah. So they had a hit Parker. Everybody else unwanted one. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing they started out being cool with like sled doggers and then they just got cool city people. New York. I mean, everyone in New York had one. <laughs> just York. go to Soho and it's like everyone's got the same coat, looks the same. And yeah. this company's in Canada or not in Canada? Yes, they're Canada, in Canada Goose. Yeah. So Canada Goose is a park company and they were trimming all their parkas with coyote. Mm-hmm. Right? My understanding is one of the board members is anti fur. And he was the one that kind of spearheaded to the elimination of the coyotes. But their coyote trim part, and historically, parkas were trimmed with wolverine and coyote. Mm-hmm. Um, the high or super high end parkas were wolverine because it doesn't freeze up and frost up. But they were buying this Canada goose company was buying enough coyotes to actually impact the coyote market. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Totally. I'd like to thank them. Thank you, Canada Goose. And then they came out and said, we're going to stop using fur. Do a book report on this, Seth. Sort of. Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> so uh, what happened? New York Times article says, uh, Canada Goose will stop buying fur, sort of. Okay. Um, Canada Goose announced that starting in 2022, the company will no longer buy new fur from trappers. By then, Canada in a couple, in a couple of years. Yeah, by 2022. By then, Canada Goose will start using reclaimed fur. Oh, that's what it fur, is. Fur that already exists in supply chain. So just between now and then, they're going to buy up every old coyote coat they can find. Yep. But it's not fake fur that they're replacing it with. And does it talk about why? Public pressure. Uh, no, no. Um, it says the shift is an eco-friendly measure. This is this the the CEO. This is his uh, his comment. The shift is an eco friendly measure, and not related to public pressure from activists. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> Sounds good. I would also like to point <laughs> out that what, fil- that what fills their jacket is not like some shaved fuzz off a bird. They're, yeah, they're no, filled full dead. of a bird's feathers. And you and, and, and a quick note to people at home. You can shear a sheep and then yep. turn that sheep back out and get another harvest of wool off it. You can do that a few times, in fact. When you fill a coat with a goose's feathers, that some bitch and goose is not alive anymore. Yep. Unless it's ethically harvested down which you kill the goose. As opposed to the practice of live plucking. Yes. A lot of companies, I was reading this, like Eddie Bauer, a bunch of other companies, 
they find live plucking to be so abhorrent that they're trying to remove live plucked down where you just grab the bird and rip its feathers out. Mm-hmm. They're trying to remove live plucked down from their supply chain or arguing about whether they have live plucked down in their supply chain because it's better to kill the damn goose and get its feathers than to rip them off alive. Yeah. I didn't even but know that was a thing. coyote Jeez. fur, now that's mean. It's just... Evil. It's one of those things that just makes you sound like an old man complaining about it, so it's hard <laughs> to complain about. But come on, man. Yep. If people don't see it, they don't care about it. Yeah, that's right. So you'll buy a coat filled with down from I don't know how many damn geese, but then you trim it. It just, if it's trimmed with coyote, like that's bad. It's because like people can't handle like reality laid out in front of them. It's learned later because. My kid's best friend, his daddy raises uh, turkeys. And they had an extra one for us to have for Thanksgiving turkey. So I took my kid over there yesterday, the 22, to get the turkey. Uh, they'd cut the feed off the day before, so it wasn't fed. So its crop was empty. Its digestive tract was emptied out. Just gave it water. It's in a little barn. My kid walked out in there and shot that turkey. Didn't even occur to him to think that there was something wrong with it. He is very, very aware of the processes of life. But the fact that some people have to have all this shit shielded from them and any little visual reminder of it is, pisses them off. It's like, it's just like people are just becoming too like weak brained. Sure. It's very easy, I think, not to think a little step further of, you know, how the meat's in front of them or uh, if they have a nice plush uh, uh, pillow on their on their sofa. Yeah. How it coat, got there. The yeah. coat is full of dead stuff. But the trim, now that. That's, the, that's, that's what offensive. tops it off. Yep. I'm not like a book burner, but if I had one of those coats, I'd go burn that son of a bitching coat. I'm still really shocked about the live plucking. There you go. I didn't know that. I assumed that the animal would be dead. So if they line it with, or they put the collar on with fake fur, then that would be acceptable, but yet it's a non-renewable resource. No, it's recycled fur. Yeah, they're using recycled fur. Just go buy old fur coats, I guess. Yeah, but I don't see where they're going to be able to find enough of that to even come close to their market. So they'll have to turn to fake fur at some point. Or back to real fur. Or back to real fur is the only two directions because they're not going to find enough. And besides that, when you as your leathers get older, they get less and less. Uh, yeah. You know, the leather itself de- de- does deteriorate because, you know, leather is biodegradable where fake fur is not really biodegradable. So. What they were into in New York prior to this was, uh, I remember when Nor- like North Face Puffies, then they got them to Canada Goose down. Oh, Yeah. Everyone had a North Face puffy. A black North Face puffy all gave way to coyote hide. (laughs) So you got a month and you got to go up and start trapping in Alaska. Yep. What are you going to do the month before that? I'm going up to hunt coyotes for a month. You're going to coyote hunting now? Yeah. I'm snaring too. How many, many, uh, when you go out, like how many hours you putting in a day? Whatever. 
whatever I can, most I can. You know, and so. then you'll use all these coyotes for your supplier? I'm in, yeah, I'll be using them in the store. I'll, most of the coyotes I want to make blankets out of. Okay. So, or quilts or throws. You ever sell them into the fur markets? In the past, I always have. Uh, is predominantly where all the fur went. But here, the, just four years ago, I started started cutting out all the middlemen and just making products myself. Yeah. And then, Rick, are you participating? Yeah, I'll be up there for a little bit. Um, we used to do it yearly and snare a whole pile of coyotes. Um, and um, I've been so busy with other projects, too. We haven't been making a living. Yeah, making <laughs> yeah. a living instead of losing money trapping. Um, so I, I've kind of had to back off a little bit on how much I used to trap. Uh, and for a lot of years, we ran around and trapped almost all winter for several years. And we'd have quite the quite the pile at the end of the year. And, and that was when fur prices were a little bit better. And we, and we did make a little money doing that. Um, Dad was getting his muskrat trap um, kind of dialed in, and we went and trapped for two weeks. And I think we ended up with, what, 709 muskrats? Uh, we were just shy of 1,000, I think. Oh, that's right. But then in two weeks, Nine, I think we got 709 yeah, in two about weeks. About $10,000 in two weeks when, so, when we sold the fur. It was, oh, a, yeah. It, yeah. It was actually lucrative then. Um, and then since the fur prices have gone down, I've kind of backed off a little and switched gears into a, um, guiding down Hawaii and doing some other with, stuff. With $10 muskrats, this trap will pay for itself in about four to five days. Yeah. You know, one hundred and eighty-five dollars, and then after that, it's all all profit. But do you think? Do you remember that movie, The Mountain Men, with Charlton Heston? It's my favorite movie. Yeah, all time no, great. It's not nearly as good as Jeremiah Johnson. It's but better. It's no, it's got right. really better. Better. It's actually got a lot of real better. problems. Listen, <laughs> that movie. What in the world? Like it, they they didn't bring in a trapper to give him any insight. Like what those guys are doing when they're supposedly trapping beaver makes zero sense. Absolutely correct. He's standing out in the middle of a pond up to his chest and like pulls up an empty trap. <laughs> and then it's like they had no idea like how. And then the beaver they have looks like a stuffed animal. Oh, yeah. Horrible. Yeah, it's the romanticism of it, though. No, it's really it's a real slap in the I face. Got, like they had zero. They had no idea what they were showing. They could have done a hell of a lot better and demonstrated something. There are parts of it that were good, but it's bad. I got to tell you why. The, the Indians are all idiots. Um, like the the trap set. It's just. It, I used to love that movie when I was a kid, but I can't watch it now. Well, here's why I love that movie. Go on. When I was growing up, my dad had the winters off, and we had a cabin in the Selkirk Mountains that would go in backcountry skiing, and we had a full trap line from where we'd unload the snowmobiles all the way up to the cabin and all around the cabin. And it ran off of uh, 12 volt batteries that we had an alternator from a truck that powered the thing and charged the batteries. And then we had a Honda generator and we had a TV with a VCR. And the only movie we had at the cabin <laughs> was The Mountain Man. And so I couldn't even estimate the number of times I've seen it. I, could, I probably know every word in it. But it was a major part of my life growing up. I'd be trapping on sure. the way up to the cabin. The only movie I had to watch was The Mountain Men up there. And so, you know, from when I was, when we built the cabin, I must have been seven or eight years old. Yeah, I suppose something Probably like that. Probably eight years old, maybe-ish. You know, I had my own trap line all the way to the cabin to watch the mountain men in the middle of nowhere in yes. northeastern Washington. I've wa I watched it again a week or two ago. Oh, yeah. I've, that and Jeremiah Johnson I've seen far more than any other movie. Yeah, so the it's historical. Like, but Jeremiah Johnson gets better and better, and I think Mountain Men, in my mind, gets worse and worse. And, I, and I'm, I'm offended by the lack of, uh, 
I'm offended by the lack of detail. Yeah. I mean, it, the accuracy is definitely not there, but I mean, have you ever been lost before? I fear some confused for a month or two, but never yeah. lost. I mean, there's enough one-liners in it that well, are, one, uh, that's that what are, I was trying to get at. One that are of, more classic than I think than Jeremiah Johnson that stick with you longer. I'm trying to get at one of those one-liners. Yeah. Fur is going to shine again. <laughs> so here it was the end of the rendezvous era, 1840s. The fur market it completely collapses in the 1840s. Three dollars. Yeah. The fur market collapsed, and they are despondent. It's done forever. Okay. Here we are. And as we know, it has been up and down a lot since then. Uh, During the roaring 20s, prior to the Great Depression, fur prices shot up and were great. Um, They got good 30, 40 years later. They got really good again. Um, They've had various spikes and things like some things that go up and down. Right now, it's just like fur prices, commercial fur Never prices. Never shine are, again. <laughs> yeah. They'll, yeah. Will fur shine again? Like, is, it, is there a way in which all of a sudden someday kids will be starting out, going out, making a bunch of money trapping? I'm not seeing it. You don't think it'll happen? Are trapping, are the numbers of trappers going I heard a great statistic in Michigan. Now. This is years ago. At a point in Michigan I heard that the average age of a fur trapper went up exactly 1 year every year. Okay. Pointing to zero makes sense. New folk coming in. Mm. But that was during a period of very low fur prices. I got into it and still dabble with the discipline today because of the influence of the fur boom of the late 70s and early 80s. That grabbed me that you could make more money, you could catch two muskrats and sell them for more money than you'd get from mowing a big-ass lawn. Hmm. And it created a mystique in my head that still sits there today. That's an early memory. Yeah, because people were people were selling five, six, seven dollar muskrats then, and it still is stuck in my head. Like I can't shake the idea when I see it. I can't sh- when I see a muskrat. It still appears to me as a thing of value. And I'll lay out a scenario that it could be again: is China's economy and fashion, right? Things could switch. Korea, China. Um, and all of a sudden, they don't care. They're on to it, and they want it. Well, there's some studies right now about the fibers from the uh, the polyesters and different things are ending up in the ocean and that. And I can see at some point, people are going to realize that fur is biodegradable and organic. And some of the things we're currently using are not as desirable. So potentially, there could be you know, at least some group of people that are going to see fur as a better alternative to what we're using now. That might be where it's at. Like, you know, the, the, the farm to table, hunt to table. Fur to table. Yeah, fur to table. I I think we'll be there sooner than we think. I mean, I don't think we're far away from that. Well, we're there right now because you know what? i on one hand. You know what I'm saving up muskrats for? Make yourself a fur blanket? I need, no, I need 60 for my wife wants a fur bomber jacket. Perfect. Now her friend 
is wants a fur bomber jacket. And then me and Seth are getting two giant blankets. So you guys need to trap some muskrats. Well, we're doing our giant blankets out of our beavers. Oh, okay. And we're going to raise a ton of money for our land access initiative through a plan that DeSeth doesn't know about yet. I like it. I like the sounds of it. And we made, how many pounds of beaver sauce did you make last year? <laughs> uh, 40, I think. Yeah. Still have a couple. Best brick sauce you ever made. I know we got to make more. So how do people go find your special traps? Uh, nongriptraps.com. What's it called? Nongrip traps. So you just sell them directly yourself? Yeah. 200 a year. Yeah, about that. Not quite that many, but. And how do people find your fur products? You make beaver wallets. What what tell people? Fur, FursAlaska.com. And you make all manner of yeah, anything, anything, yeah, resources. make all kinds of things. I make coasters out of the beaver tails and you know, there's all kinds of things. I pretty much use the entire beaver. I sell the beaver teeth. I, you old, sell the meat sled doggers? No, we don't have any sled doggers where I'm at. Oh. Plus the meat, the meat is reasonably good bait. For bait. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, Rick, how do people find all your, um, how, do, how do they go hunting and fishing with you? Oh, man, that's um, chromechasers.com. What, say it again? Uh, chromechasers.com. That's for steelhead. That's for steelhead. And then we actually just uh, started a fall foraging week-long trip to where we go and basically immerse ourselves in southeast Alaska. Um, we, we do some fishing. We do uh, clamming, shrimp. Uh, crab, catch some salmon, and then we go back and do almost preparation, preservation, cooking type classes, and we pick a lot of wild mushrooms. Um, and you basically go out and get everything you make for a meal that night. And then we go over some can- canning techniques, smoking techniques for fish, all of that. So that's something new where we're, we've just adapted last year. Um, and that's out of Wrangell. And it's out of Wrangell, yeah. And that, that'll be late summer, fall. So the foraging trips are late summer, fall. And then spring steelhead fishing is in the springtime. And what if they want to go catch a bonefish in Hawaii? If they want to go catch a bonefish in Hawaii, it's Hawaii on the fly. Um, I work for a guy named Mike, Mike Hennessy. Um, Captain Kenny Karras is the other guy down there. Um, he can get you set up if I'm not there. Um, and that's a bonefish down there. Um, the ranch I work for is a private ranch, which is a whole private deal on Molokai. Um, so unfortunately, you can't go do that. That's an invite only. Oh, I got um, you. But the Oahu bonefish program is Hawaii on the fly. And then Rick Mantney Outdoors is uh, is my outfitting business here. And I've been doing it long enough now to where my clientele list um, is the same guys every year. And I don't even have a website. So you're not even looking for new clients. I'm not even, yeah, you, you, you have to know one of my clients before you get in kind of deal from Montana. Really? Yeah. And for better or for worse, that's the position I am. I, I haven't put any energy into even a website or advertising. Um, I, I feel like it's almost a disservice to my current clients to, to do that. Um, I don't want to grow and be huge in Montana and have do a ton of trips. I don't think the resource in Montana and the fishing outfitting business is sustainable at the growth rate that it is now. So I'm not going to try to grow my business to become part of you don't what wanna, I see. You don't want to add to the- I don't want to add to the pile. To the I utter see that, insanity yeah, that has become guided it, fly fishing. Yeah, I see it being a problem. So I'm going to just personally limit the number of days I do. I'm going to take the guys that I like um, and just limit my impact. Yeah, you want to talk about loving it to death, man. Holy smokes. That, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, some that, of the that's rivers, a whole other topic. Some of the summertime fly fishing rivers here, it's just un. Believable. It's changed. It's different. You know, but the fish. It's like the Macy's Day Parade. Oh, yeah. But the fish are fine. You know, the biologists. Oh, yeah, I'm not worried about the fish. They're not, the fish aren't even native for the most part. 
Yeah, a lot like of these... them are. Yeah, and and so are we hurting the resource by doing it? Probably not. Are we hurting the quality of the experience? Probably yes. Yeah, that'll catch up to itself over and time. So it will, and people will start to look for other things. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. So, anyways, I don't have a website for my Montana outfitting business. Um, Rick Matney Outdoors is is what I call my business. Um, so, yeah. Other than that. You know, I kind of run around. I do the cooking stuff for you guys, obviously, here and there. Um, and wildgamechef.com is my wild cooking business. And I'm starting to do in-home wild game cooking classes, as well as some cooking classes out at Ross Creek Cabins, um, which is locally here in town. And so I'm going to start working on some stuff there, too, as well. Man, and you, uh, you have a fair bit of time in website management. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have any time into it. I, I don't know even what a web, website is. I'm, I got guys that help me out. You know, I help people, you know, I'm a big fan of the barter system. You know, it's, it costs a lot of money to hire someone to do a website, but you know, some guys like to you know, want to have a hunting experience in Montana and it's like, okay, well, I'll, you come out to Montana, you and I'll go tromp around the woods and you help me with a website. There's, there's a lot of trading to be done in the outdoor world. Yeah, for that sure. doesn't in, include monetary stuff. And especially since, you know, the way the government and taxes and everything else are going these days, I like to keep as much of that out of their, uh, their, yep. uh, their side as possible. Reduce the amount of cash flowing around. Yeah. Just a big fan of the barter system. All right, guys. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, there's a couple of things I like is that method of uh, not playing by the rules. I don't mean with hunting and fishing rules, but I mean like assembling lives out of just the stuff that interests you. Yeah. And not being like beholden to the man, but just going out and like crafting a way to live. Yeah, where so you're like, like working with what's there and like building an outdoor life. Yeah. Sometimes you have to figure out how to make money on your way to making money. Yeah. So, you know, if you got to go over here to do something, it's not a lot of work to stop and check a trap. If you're doing that same path every day, there's an extra 20 bucks, you know, if you catch a beaver, an extra hundred dollars, you catch a coyote on the way. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, I, I appreciate it, man. Like assembling, assembling livelihoods out of all these outdoor interests and being able to live a life where you're out and doing your own thing and working for yourself. It's cool. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, it's Steve here. Are you serious about hunting or self-defense? Well, starting in 1996, XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied that methodology to modern defensive handguns, all made in America and trusted by industry leaders. 
Meat Eater listeners can get an exclusive discount on the XS Sites website. So just go to xssites.com and use code Meat Eater at checkout for 25% off. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light. 